We've made a concerted effort to think about how we create opportunity for the families who live in the places where we own properties. And so that requires investors to say, I could invest in this community and seek to extract every dollar of value. However, if I'm thinking about the families who have to live in this community, well, who's going to work at the factories that I own in the other part of my investment portfolio? You are listening to the AFR podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. So anyone can see the numbers. The demand for affordable housing is climbing every day, while the supply is not, at least not fast enough to meet it. And there are quite a few reasons cited for this. But when I meet developers and investors focused on affordable housing, it's frankly inspiring to see that none of those reasons that people cite actually stop intelligent and passionate builders if they have the will. Now, our guest today, here in the middle of July of 2022, is a builder with no shortage of willpower. He's a former pro football player with the Cincinnati Bengals, the New York Jets, and the Pittsburgh Steelers, and a former director at J.P. Morgan's real estate group. I doubt that some NIMBY has much of a chance when he's charging the field. Now, in the last few years, Malcolm Johnson created a new firm, Langdon Park Capital, that's focused on making affordability happen, and where he is, the CEO. So thank you so much, Malcolm, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Awesome. And thank you, Gunnar, for having me. appreciate you and your team always shining a bright light on the work of owner operators and investors like those at Langdon Park Capital and, and our esteemed partners. So I, I guess I'll just start with the tough question first, how, how, and something that you've already proven to be true. How can we make affordability happen? You know, that's a great question and one that you really touched on in your intro, Gunnar. I think the, the real key is intentionality. If, if there's a focused, concerted effort to actually make these solutions work, and that requires partnership from all sides, not just members of the community, but investors who are seeking, hopefully not just financial returns, but greater, uh, greater overall impact for the community, then of course it's possible. But you do have to be hyper-focused on actually making that happens. So that means looking at communities and seeing not what they are today, but what they could be. Looking at communities and, and looking at the entirety of all stakeholders and deciding what um, what upside looks like for a resident, what it looks like for an investor, what it looks like for a vendor who's working on those projects, and then you get to real solutions that uh, that are holistic and work for for everyone. You know, it sounds like to a certain extent you're saying that one of the main obstacles, and this is not something that people list all the time. They talk about NIMBYs or they talk about zoning. You're talking about perception in terms of what these things look like and how they work or understanding these neighborhoods. Do, do you think then that it's a perception issue as well as all the other issues that are standing in the way? Well, that's true of so many things, Gunnar, and, and you know, you use the word important word perception. And in many cases, perception often becomes reality. You know, one of the things we've done really well at Langdon Park Capital is, is utilize our team's lived experience and cultural competency in the submarkets where we own and operate properties. So we don't perceive risk where there is none. We don't perceive bad neighborhoods when they're actually good, good people just trying to raise families living there. So we see value um, at the outset. That's not necessarily true for those 
who don't have lived experience, who have not, uh, who've not been on the ground in places like Washington, D.C. and South L.A. and East Bay and, and Northern California, we have. So, you know, that perception is often what creates some very non-real um, not real risk. And, and for us, it's a real opportunity. It's almost like we're using heuristics that are rather blunt in terms of if it looks like some, you know, I don't know, some suburban neighborhood, then it's okay. And if it doesn't, then it's not okay. It's higher risk and not really analyzing the data underneath it. That's right. And, and you know, in, in a lot of instances, that's just kind of human nature in and of itself. If there's some level of unfamiliarity, then then naturally you may shy away from moving towards that. We We seek to less than that unfamiliarity because our team has actually lived in these sorts of neighborhoods. We volunteered as coaches, mentors outside of our decades of experience as real estate investors. So, you know, we see opportunity Mm -hmm. where others might see challenges. Mm -hmm. So what else is standing in the way uh, other than, than this kind of larger, grander thing? What, why aren't we doing more um, affordable housing? I mean, there's just a continued shortage and it seems like the gap is only increasing as time goes on. You know, one of the, the biggest challenges has been, um, you know, the way capitalism works and, and not to say our firm is not uh, a fiduciary. In fact, we are, obviously we've been able to attract uh, significant, significant amounts of, of capital from institutional partners and they fully expect uh, a financial return on their investment, which, which we're going to deliver. But, um, Thinking about ways to broaden the moat as opposed to build a bridge is what has, has prevented solutions from happening in the past. So, you know, if you're if you're a, an allocator of capital and you've got literally hundreds of billions to allocate to whatever your investment portfolio looks like, thinking about ways to maybe create returns for people in communities that have no access to institutional capital is a way to enhance your overall portfolio, as opposed to let me think about how I can go amass more billions while those who have no access get even less of the pie. So that that requires, a, again, a different perspective from investors, which fortunately uh, we've seen a real, a real uh, readiness to do on the part of our partners. You know, when we survey our institutional investors all over the world, consistently I get the feedback that they want to do more uh, affordable housing investing. Again, they see the numbers and, you know, the demand outstrips the supply. Um, and they have missions as well for their pension hold, uh, pension holders and their, their constituencies. Um, w- how should they be thinking about investing going forward? I mean, one of the things they have trouble with is scale. Uh, you know, to do this right, you're not necessarily doing, you know, billions of dollars at a shot. Um, how should they be thinking about investing in affordable housing markets in the U.S.? It's a great question as well. And, and you know, there are a couple answers to that. First of all, affordable housing has many definitions. But Langdon Park Capital, which is, you know, traditional, uh, at least in terms of structure, real estate investment management firm, we've, we've, uh, we've amassed outside capital alongside our own to go invest in, in real estate that will ultimately produce some financial return. So structurally, that looks a lot like many private equity firms that invest in real estate. However, we've made a concerted effort, again, being intentional, to think about how we create opportunity for the families who live in the places where we own properties. And so that requires investors to say, you know, I could invest in this community and seek to extract every dollar of value and, and maybe get a return that's north of a 25%. However, if I'm thinking about the families who have to live in this community and may not be able to afford to stay here, 
if we move rents by 30, 40, 50 percent, and I'm talking about real numbers that have happened in places like Northern California, Los Angeles County, Washington, D.C., well, who's going to work at the factories that I own in the other part of my investment portfolio? Who's going to educate the children who are going to be the next generation of workers? Like those things don't go together. So we define uh, we define our workforce housing as that which is uh, affordable for families who earn somewhere between 60 and 120 percent of area median income in the submarkets where we invest. In Los Angeles County, that area median income is just over $72,000 a year, which is too much for you to qualify for any government subsidies. It's too little in many cases for you to be able to afford a single family home. So you're a renter by necessity, but you deserve a safe, clean, affordable place to live because how else are you going to get to your job at a local hospital or teaching at a public school or uh, being a firefighter? So those are essential elements of a working economy. We just invest in the housing where those types of families live. I think that's such a, a wonderful description of how this is a, a much broader issue um, in terms of if I'm uh, investing in workforce housing, I'm helping the overall economy succeed in a way that it might not otherwise. <clears throat> and when people talk about the housing issue, they talk so much about how in some cities like in Northern California, where do the regular workers live? They, they can't afford to live in those places. So I think it's interesting how it, it has an impact well beyond perhaps the most desperate um, in our society. It's, it's regular people. It's people that do the jobs that we all need done. Um, now, when you talk about, okay, so you're not getting, you know, north of 20% uh, returns on, on these kinds of investments. What is the range of, of returns that you can see in a workforce housing? What, what, what should folks expect? Yeah. So, you know, the other interesting thing is that, um, the investment market in general, this is not just real estate, tends to be fairly speculative once you get to that, that range of opportunistic type returns. There's no guarantee of, of any return period, but when you're talking about higher targeted returns, then you move into the realm of, of much higher risk. And so what we think we've done by investing in the type of housing that's essential for families in high growth areas is take away a lot of the risk that would be associated with speculation um, on, on any investment. And so we also, look at returns in one other way, non-financial and how much impact are we achieving? So at the properties that we own and operate, we partner with any number of nonprofits and social services providers to bring real opportunities for life enhancement to the families who live in our buildings. And then we quantify that. So if we own a 300 unit building in suburban Washington, DC, and we partner with a nonprofit that provides employment services to families who live in that community, well, we bring them on site to our building and now a resident at our property has an opportunity to get access to job training, access to higher paying, higher paying careers, not just jobs. And ultimately, they're able to participate in a growing economy. And so naturally, as rents rise, as inflation continues to happen, that individual moves from I was a store manager. Now I'm a district manager. I was a district manager. Now I've got an opportunity to save more, go back to school and get a graduate degree and possibly become an owner myself. Like these are the things that we think can happen in partnership with our social services partners. And we quantify that. That's part of the return. That's, that's why, I, again, I'll go back to, it requires a different type of lens. You can't just say, what is my financial return? And I'm happy with that. How much opportunity did I create by being in that community, we try to quantify that. 
And that's one of the things that our investors look to us as opposed to many competitors who are only looking at metrics that are traditionally financial. Interesting. So it's all about broadening the mind, broadening the scope. Um, and you know, it's interesting to me, and I'm going to ask a question I'm sure you get asked all the time, uh, but it's, it's like, it's, it's a, a no brainer to ask it of someone that has your background, how much of your background starting as a football player, uh, has kind of changed the way you see things and, and how did you make that transition? I mean, what a, what a, you know, in some ways shocking transition all the way from pro football to affordable housing developer. Um, can you tell me how you got there? Yeah. So I, I'll say this to, 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 to take it even a step further. Before I was a football player as, as a professional, I was a member of a proud uh, Black family in, in Northeast Washington, D.C. And so my parents um, deserve a lot of credit for making sure my brothers and I were educated on what it meant to be a real member of a community. And my parents are uh, college sweethearts, University of Pennsylvania graduates, and they made a conscious decision to raise my brothers and I in a working class neighborhood in, in Washington, D.C. during the 1980s at a time when that city um, was going through a lot of turbulence because of um, some very intentional disinvestment in the city and uh, a drug, drug epidemic swept through that city. And, and yet my parents stayed focused on being pillars of the community. And, and my brothers and I were able to get uh, world-class education at, at one of the best high schools in the city. And, and while I was there, I became a pretty good student athlete and ultimately uh, moved on to, to play football in, first in college at the University of Notre Dame and later for, for four years on several teams in the NFL as well. But, um, you know, I'd say the combined, the combined experience, one, of being born and raised in a true mixed income community that was primarily people of color, um, and, then, and then having parents who focused on how we could uplift our neighbors uh, through education and providing opportunity, and then teamwork. Um, you know, my, my experience as an athlete taught me a lot about teamwork and building great partnerships. So, you know, all the lessons that I'm sure you, you're well aware of from athletes who have much better careers than I did as a pro around uh, determination, sacrifice, uh, accountability. I learned those as an athlete, but, you know, I, I think I never, I never viewed myself solely as an athlete. So when, when I retired from pro sports in my mid-20s, the thought was, how can I be uh, a pillar of the community in the same way that my parents were uh, and still are? And that's what prompted me to move into the world of finance, where I felt I could do a better job of, again, bridging the gap between those who have and those who do not have access to opportunity. There's really no other, there's no other differentiator. There's, there's no intelligence gap. There's no work ethic gap. It's just, do you have access to opportunity? So, so that's what I've been fortunate to be able to do through my career as a banker and now as, as a private equity uh, professional. But not only are you doing that, but you are very active from a volunteer perspective and, and a guest lecturer for a wide range of schools like Carnegie Mellon, UCLA, Penn, and all these other schools and non-for-profits. What do you say to young people um, about real estate? And how can we as an industry perhaps create a better pipeline of talent for people coming into real estate? So one of the first things I say is, um, especially when I'm talking to students today, I'd have a really difficult time getting into this school if I weren't a guest lecturer. There's, there's this incredible, <laughs> there's this incredible um, pipeline of, of great talent that goes to the top universities. And again, in many cases, it's because of access. It's because they've had access to after-school enrichment programs from the time they were, were able to, to learn to read, um, They've had access to the best tutors. 
they've been able to travel the world. So they get, uh, they get all the tools they need to go succeed in these places. But the one thing that I always say they have to think about is their responsibility, their responsibility to bring what they're learning to those who sit outside the walls of Penn or Carnegie Mellon or UCLA or Notre Dame, because that's where the world happens. You know, when you're on a college campus, when you're in a classroom with the best of the best, you're sitting amongst the talented 10th, but there's literally the whole world outside your classroom. So, you know, one of the things that real estate brings together is is really the macro economy all in, in, in one industry. You've got financial, uh, you've got economics, you've got interest rates, you've got employment drivers, you've got how people shop, where we choose to live. All that happens within real estate, but all of that requires the perspective of people who come from different backgrounds. If you've ever been inside a large shopping center or a skyscraper or a big apartment complex, you'll notice there are many different types of people, right? You've got the person who's working there, you've got the person who's shopping there, you've got the person who's cleaning the building, but they share one thing. In most cases, they all live in the same submarket. They all have to exist in the same space. So what, is it, what does it mean if the decision maker on how that property is built, where that property prices, all look the same? You're not going to get the best experience for all of those stakeholders. And so that's why it's important to bring different perspectives into our business more than anyone uh, in any industry, because truly we are a microcosm of society and we have to find ways to work for the greater good. I, you know, I love when you talk about the responsibility to engage with the world and to bring whatever we have to that world. I mean, our ethics group is working on creating a code of ethics for our industry. And they talk a lot about um, beyond the fiduciary responsibility, which we have, but also what is the responsibility as folks that are fortunate enough to work as investors in real estate uh, to the communities that they serve and to engaging those communities and, and drawing from their intelligence and from their experiences in order to create something that's, that's better for everyone. Um, I, you know, but what I love is you're not just talking about it in terms of ethics or responsibility. You're talking about it in terms of this is how you make a more successful product, uh, that people can use and, and live, work and play in, uh, which I think is just fascinating. Um, how, how do you think what are, let me put it this way. What, what do you think investors are missing? that institutions in particular are missing about affordable housing? What's, the, what's that weird idea they have in their head that's keeping them from seeing the opportunity? Well, I'll, I'll say the same, the same lack of access exists on the investor side. Unfortunately, you know, I had, I had close to a decade and a half of working um, in that space, most recently at JP Morgan, prior to that at Bank of America. So I had access to, to you know, all of the top thought leaders uh, who, who work in the real estate markets. And, and so, you know, one of those groups became one of our founding partners, uh, a company called Kennedy Wilson, which is based here in Southern California, where Langdon Park Capital is. But most companies like that don't have access to managers who look like the team at Langdon Park Capital. So they just haven't been educated on, wait, opportunity exists in these submarkets if you think about allocating resources as opposed to, I've never been on that exit off the freeway. So clearly there can't be, an, there can't be any reason to go invest there. So I think it's a two-way street. You know, we, we've, we've done a pretty good job in our first year and a half of existence of waving a bright light around the opportunities that exist in places like South LA and Washington, DC and Northern California, other black and Latino communities. 
around the country. But I do think um, as we find success, investors will start seeking out other culturally competent <laughs> managers who've got lived experience. I, I can't I can't stress that enough. You you know you you have to find ways to go partner with groups that understand these submarkets and think about them differently in order to, to, to generate real value. So that's, that's probably been the biggest, the biggest barrier. Just they haven't, been, they haven't been willing to look for managers who look different. And, and fortunately, you know, we're stepping into that space. There are a handful of others who are as well. And, and the impact is going to be, uh, continue to be really great. That, that makes just so much sense. And, you know, I find it interesting that all the markets you're talking about are core markets where investors complain that there's not enough uh, opportunities to invest in uh, because of the pricing, uh, et cetera. Um, and yet, right underneath their nose, perhaps on that exit that they haven't ever taken, the, there are opportunities. It's just it's, they're not seeing it yet, and they need help to do that. Well, okay, so we've talked about what you think people might be missing. What what are you most excited about perhaps happening over the next couple of years um, in this space? What, what do you think could happen that, that could really kind of blow this wide open? Yeah, you know, we, we've seen some of it already. And, and, you know, a lot of that is a testament to our amazing team and the partners that we've been able to attract in, in relatively short order. Um, but the, the most exciting thing is probably continued return to quality in terms of investments in real estate. And, and a return to quality means stable cash flow. It means low vacancy. It means core markets. And, and in the case of workforce housing, it means areas where there's a huge supply demand imbalance for this type of product. And so, you know, we're well positioned to take advantage of just that. I think as we, as we enter into what may be an, an extended inflationary period, we've got to think about how do we provide stable, affordable, safe housing. And a lot of that is just investing in the housing stock that's already there, not necessarily over improving it, but again, going back to what I said earlier about providing social services that make the lives, uh, life, life better for families who live at these properties. That's an improvement. How do we make sure the building actually looks like a community as opposed to a correctional facility? Like you'd be shocked at how many owners think about properties, and safety in such a different way because they themselves have never had to live in these sorts of communities. How it feels when you walk into an apartment community, you've got bars on the window or barbed wire on your, on your gate. You need things like, wait a second, my neighbors are looking out for the community. This walkway is well lit and it's landscaped with beautiful succulents for, for our properties in Southern California. That makes me feel like I live in a safe community because now there's this neighborhood watch feel so those are the sorts of things that we, we think about when it comes to safety and security. Those are the things that add value, not necessarily finding ways to lock residents down. But again, if you've lived in these sorts of neighborhoods, this is second nature. And, and you think about it that way. Um, so that's, that's what but, I'm But excited. at the same time, I mean, so many intellectuals in our space have, have pointed out what makes an, an area feel safe. You know, Jane Jacobs talked about this in the 60s. Um, you know, we're talking about it now when we develop high-end stuff and how we make that feel safe in cities like New York. Um, it should apply everywhere, up and down the economic spectrum. Why a fortress would feel safe for someone who doesn't have any money any more than someone who's loaded. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any logical sense. Well, that's right. And look, having grown up three blocks away from public housing in, in Washington, D.C., I can tell you one of, one of our country's failed 
urban experience are, are what are commonly known as housing projects. And you find them in places like Washington, D.C. and uh, south side of Chicago used to have one of the largest housing projects in the country in Cabrini Green. In uh, New York City, housing projects are still home to many under-resourced neighborhoods and underprivileged residents. But that fortress community that you described often has no job services, poor performing schools surround those projects. Um, ownership thinks of, of building moats as opposed to how do we build bridges? And so therefore you get these really bad outcomes. We, we um, do our, and we're one part of the solution. Literally we're one part of the solution, but through our investments, we think about how we can bring opportunities, communities and, and create better neighborhoods that are safer, um, better resourced, and oh, by the way, this business is scalable because there's so many communities around the country that have this same challenge. You just need a very intentional approach to how we create more value. That's an excellent place to, to bring this to a close as we're running out of time. But uh, I, I want to make sure anyone who's listening, pay attention to uh, developers uh, or, or investors like and managers like Langdon Park Capital as they're redefining uh, where the opportunities might be in some of our core markets. I think it's important to do that. Thank you, Malcolm, uh, CEO of Langdon Park Capital, for joining us on the AFR podcast. Gunnar, thank you. And looking forward to seeing you at, at many of these to come. And, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to chat again as Langdon Park Capital and others in this market continue to grow. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.